1: Well, if real fraud were not enough, how about synthetic identity fraud? Here to tell us what it is, is Jeffrey Feinstein. He is a vice president of global analytics at LexisNexis and an expert on synthetic identity fraud. Jeffrey, thank you for being with us. What is it? What is synthetic identity fraud?
3: Hello, I'm glad to be here. Synthetic identity fraud is a really complicated type of fraud that we're seeing emerge since roughly 2012, and it requires a great deal of coordination. And what really happens is synthetic identities are these Frankenstein-like identities that are created by fraudsters, and these identities don't correspond to real people. They basically create false identities, and they register these identities in the credit system with the purpose of stealing from companies. And it's not just banks that they're stealing from. They steal from all sorts of types of companies, in particular telecoms, utilities, fintechs, and even the government.
2: So, Jeffrey, just to get a sense of what this would be uh, if you played it out, a person would create a false identity that they would have no qualms about walking away from, leaving a lot of bills unpaid for services that they took under their real identities.
3: That's exactly right. So what, what the fraudster does is they create a new identity that doesn't really correspond to their true identity and they, they curate that identity to make them look like better and better customers. So they pay their bills on time, and they let that relationship with their financial institutions evolve. So they're curating credit, and they're becoming good customers. And then what happens is over a period of uh, weeks or months, or it could even go on as years, they simply poof, disappear. And that That negative activity doesn't really correspond to a true identity. And in fact, that's the big challenge for financial institutions, that there's no true victim.
2: So, well, except that they are a victim, because that means that there are bills that are unpaid, that are outstanding, presumably at the end, uh, that somebody walks away without paying. But I'm wondering, Jeffrey, can you give a sense of what kind of scope we're talking about? How big of a problem is this?
3: It's hard to say for sure. Because financial institutions don't always know they've been, they've been a victim. So what's really happening is they see a really good customer, they just stop paying their bills, and many financial institutions might assume that that's just a consumer that fell on hard times. Uh, and also, it's pretty recent, which means we don't have a whole lot of time to look at macroeconomic trends. But let me share a couple of numbers with you. For the last 10 to 15 years, around 7 million new identities enter into the credit system. And it's surprisingly consistent over that 10 to 15 years. The little bit of fluctuation we tend to see is usually related to either fluctuations in birth rate, about 15 years prior, or immigration rate. and. And so what we see is that stable number. However, since 2012 to about today, we've seen a 10 percent increase in that number that had been historically stable. And in fact, when you start digging into these new identities, we've seen uh, almost an 800 percent increase in the number of suspicious identities. And that is suspicious synthetic identities uh, entering that system. And in fact, just speaking to a risk manager at a bank, uh, this was a week or two ago, they actually indicated this was an eight-digit problem. That's tens of millions of dollars of meaningful losses to that financial institution.
1: So is there a situation where you have collection agencies that are trying to collect money that is due a company, whether it's a telco or a bank, they're trying to collect from people who do not exist?
3: That's a, that's a really good point and it's part of the problem. So in true name fraud, what happens is that the consumer victim will raise their hand and work with the bank and essentially that gets wiped from the system as part of their fraud operations. But because these, these synthetic or these Frankenstein consumers uh, just disappear and they're treated as credit risk, you will see them all through the life cycle and we do see them on collection files when we help customers figure out, hey, why why is this collection program not working, it's pretty common to see that there are synthetic identities drifting into those collections programs.
2: Jeffrey, has there been any progress made in identifying the types of people who create these identities? I mean, it seems like it's a relatively sophisticated scheme in that people are curating uh, their creditworthiness over a particular period of time. this doesn't this takes this takes quite a bit of effort.
3: Yeah, this is definitely a full-time job for those fraudsters who are committing these sorts of fraud. And while I can go through it, I don't want to say too much, because I also don't want to give instructions over the radio on how to create these identities. But what we see is these fraudsters working in identity factories. It's almost like an assembly line of smoke and mirrors to create these Frankenstein identities. And in fact, we know of one in the state of Pennsylvania that created 7,000 of these fake identities. And what's interesting about that is when you look at your own history, your, your identity has really evolved at the speed of life. And what I mean by that is there are key milestones where you registered a car, you got a driver's license, you registered to vote, you got credit and so forth. And that's a relatively slow migration in a true identity. However, these identity factories are really scaled for time. Right. And what that means is they don't evolve that quickly. They they evolve for a profit motive as opposed to a, a true life motive. Does that sure. make sense?
2: That makes perfect sense. Jeffrey Feinstein, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, fascinating synthet- synthetic identity fraud. Uh, definitely an interesting development. Jeffrey Feinstein is PhD and Vice President of Global Analytics at LexisNexis. still digesting uh, all the details of the horrific mass shooting at a country music festival near Las Vegas on October 2nd yesterday. Uh, Joining us is Chris Palmieri, who is in Las Vegas. He is the bureau chief for Bloomberg uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, Chris, can you just give us first a sense of the mood right now in Las Vegas? I'm sure you've been there uh, before. Has it changed?
4: Yeah, it's it's definitely very somber. This is just coincidentally the start of the Global Gaming Expo, which is the largest trade show for the casino industry, about 26,000 people from all around the world coming in. So uh, some speakers had to cancel, some spoke and were, you know, very choked up. Uh, there were, uh, you know, signs of increased security everywhere. Uh, it's it's definitely had a, it's taken a, sort of a toll overall on the usually uh, party city.
1: Chris, uh, what about the uh, increased security measures? Uh, we know that, for example, worldwide sporting events, whether it's the uh, FIFA World Cup, you know, you go to an event like that, you're going to be scanned, and there's going to be someone with a wand. Uh, do you see those kinds of products in evidence today?
4: Just saw that for the first time yesterday at the Wynn Resort, where uh, anybody that wanted to walk into the hotel uh had to get their uh, bags checked and, and be uh wanded, you know, with a, a metal detector. Uh you know, that uh, you know, in immediate aftermath uh the some of the MGM properties were on lockdown and um and they were checking IDs of people that you know, wanted to come in to make sure they were guests. Uh but I haven't seen any other uh casinos yet adopt what Wynn had done. Steve Wynn has always been a leader in the industry, uh you know, I did speak to some casinos actually said that very may wear it very well be the future uh, of uh, anybody that comes in the building, because that that's there was really no other way to prevent the situation with the shooter, with the guns in the hotel room. He wasn't attending the concert.
2: You know. Yeah, well, I mean, Chris, uh, that, that was sort of uh, what struck me, is how does a person... How many guns did he have? 18? How many? He had a whole arsenal that he brought up to a high floor of a hotel. And then uh, from that perch, uh, massacred 59 people. I mean, that's uh, it's sort of amazing, frankly, that that could happen at all.
4: Amazing amount of planning, too, on his end. Uh, You know, I think he checked in on Thursday. You know, he had more uh, more gear than just all those guns. I mean, he had some sort of hammer that he could break those windows, which are very thick. Uh, He had stands that he could rest the weapons on to get a better shot. Uh, Just, you know, amazing, and and, and it's diabolical nature.
2: So... Chris, are we getting any more details uh behind the motivation? I um have read a number of stories saying that he was not connected with anybody else that the threat has uh, come down, but are there any more details behind uh, what actually transpired?
4: Uh yes. Um it's um it's a big, uh, you know, question mark because I you know, I spoke to security people and um there were um uh you know, no signs really uh, you know, typically on these active shooters, 80% of them give some sort of warning. Speak to somebody. Leave a manifesto. Whatever uh, this guy seemingly came out of nowhere.
1: Chris uh, is N- Nevada is an open carry state, correct? I think the thirty-one states that allow open carrying of handguns. And this was not a handgun, of course. Uh,
4: there was a measure just recently to uh, try to get the uh, background checks in tighter gun control. Um, there, you know, everyone here is sort of you know, focused on the morning and the event and immediate security. Uh, but I would imagine uh, as the days come and the president visits, there'll be a much greater focus on, on gun control.
2: I wonder what the mood is among some of the casino operators. I mean, this has to be a huge blow for them. I mean, on a personal level, it's always just devastating uh, to see this type of uh, death toll. But aside from that, going forward, I would imagine that people would uh, rethink some of their plans to Las Vegas unless there's some very clear measures to prevent this type of thing from happening again, no?
4: Uh, you know, I, it's, it, it's, it's, coincidental, as I said, that I, that it happened during the start of this, uh, convention, but I think it, uh, definitely sends a message to casino executives, you know, it's happened before in casinos, uh, there's been a massive shift here in Las Vegas to create, you know, when it used to be, they tried to keep people in the casinos, now they're opening the doors literally with events, uh, concerts, uh, you know, creating the pedestrian-friendly areas in front of the hotels. So as they focus on, you know, these more experiential, as they call them, uh, you know, experiences that, um, you know, they've got to take security a lot more into consideration. They've got to look at things from all angles and act like the secret service and, and think about, you know, tall buildings and, and, and constant vigilance, uh, during events. And it's going to be a different world.
1: You know, Chris, as the L.A. Bureau Chief, you go from uh, California, where they have uh, strict gun control uh, rules and regulations, but, you know, firearms are allowed, uh, and to uh, Las Vegas, which is really an international tourist destination. Is there any uh, conversation or any uh, debate that you've heard about limiting the uh, access of people who carry firearms legally to various private properties?
4: Not immediately, but I'll tell you just as a little color. I went yesterday to this place called Battlefield Vegas, which is one of these places, and there are quite a number of them, very close to this Strip, where you can go buy machine guns. And this particular place looked like a, a National Guard arsenal. I mean, they had tanks, and the employees were wearing uh, fatigues. And there were people there. There were. There was. I don't know what their regular day is like, but you know, I talked to some guys who said, "Hey, we scheduled this before." You know, they're walking out with these uh, targets that are full of uh, machine gun uh, bullet holes. Uh, You know, there were tourists from Asia, you know, getting their picture taken on tanks. Uh, uh, You know, the manager uh, didn't want to talk to me. uh, But, uh, you know, there is very much, uh, you know, a desire in in some communities to have this kind of access. So that's going to be the tug of war going forward.
2: Well, is that the subject of discussion just among people who you encounter as you uh, walk around Las Vegas?
4: I initially I think it was really focused on on just the, the shock and the uh and the and the enhanced security. I did speak to the uh I this, the former uh, Boston police commissioner who was there during the Boston uh, marathon attack and you know he did bring up the subject of gun control. He said he would have thought it would have been an issue a lot earlier with Sandy Hook and that and, and he's actually speaking this morning to the to the convention. Uh so we'll see what he has to say there. Uh but you know I'm sure it'll be uh, uh, more of a conversation as the, as the initial shock wears off.
1: Well, apparently, you know, uh, and this just coming from uh, Greg Jarrett, who says, you know, you cannot carry a, uh, a firearm into an establishment that has gambling. And most casinos uh, do not en- allow concealed weapons, even if you have a concealed a weapons permit, you can be refused entry because, as I said earlier, it's a a private business. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Chris Palmieri, he is our Los Angeles Bureau Chief reporting from Las Vegas.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like,
1: Well, we want to visit right now with Rebecca Linlin, Executive Analyst for Cox Automotive, because, of course, we got many of the sales reports this morning. Toyota GM posting the biggest U.S. sales gains on the uh, post-Harvey hurricane demand, and she joins us here in our 1130 studios. Rebecca, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Thanks
5: so much what for do being you make, here.
1: What do you make of this report?
5: I think that we've seen some fantastic sales coming out. They basically have beat all of our uh, the analyst estimates, and I think it's a combination of things. It's really a uh, pent-up demand from the hurricane because a lot of people didn't shop in the last few weeks, both of August and September. And so we have some pent-up demand there. And then we also have fantastic incentives. We've got great new products coming out. We've got a, a stock market at record levels, high consumer confidence. There's all sorts of fantastic reasons to go out and buy a car. And there's great new product coming out as well.
2: Well, this is such a shift in tone because just a few months ago, a lot of automakers were talking about how they're expecting to see sales declines. They were seeing sales declines. Resale values of cars were going down. All of a sudden now, is this really a shift in the overall landscape landscape for automakers, or is this really a blip uh, that is due to the hurricanes?
5: It's more of a blip. And I don't think that we're necessarily going to see this continue, you know, so, so come as we report in on October sales on November 1st, I think we could see some declines, but at the same time, people that are getting insurance payouts may still be shopping in October. So it. I think it's hard to say now the, the full impact of the hurricanes and how that plays out over the next few months. And again, if we think about product, we've got a new Camry, we've got a new Honda Accord that I just drove last week. So we've got some really high volume, really good vehicles coming out. The the difficulty through with twenty seventeen is that because we had a record setting twenty sixteen, every month it's going to you know it's hard to beat that record. So we're always going to be down a little bit. Yes,
2: although you know you said there's such great incentives. Incentives are great for the buyers. They're not that great for the manufacturers because that means they're expect accepting a lower profit margin. And yes, they are coming off an exceptionally good year, but they've seen weakness in a
5: lot of areas. And uh, their profits have sort of uh, have have reflected that. Well, General Motors is still making $9 billion in profits. So that's pretty good. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) I mean, I think it's important to remember that this is not the industry of two thousand seven, eight and 9. This is a much more disciplined, much trimmer industry. And so you know, a a company like GM has shed brands. uh, Fiat Chrysler shed models. So we're in a situation where even if they incentivize, we are still making some really healthy profit numbers.
1: Let me just give you an example, and I want your reaction to this. If you want to buy a 2017 Camry and you want to finance it, they'll give you $500 bonus cash, 0% APR, and $72 Months.
5: Yes. So as a former employee of the FDIC, <laughs> I do look carefully at some of these credits and, and credit worthiness and such. You know, one of the we own Kelly Blue Book dealer.com, auto trader. So we're able to track a lot of different parts of the industry. And the number one thing that I I caution consumers against is overextending themselves. You do not want to go for a 72 or 84 month loan, because then when you trade that vehicle in, you probably will owe more than it's worth. So I would just caution people. Let's talk
2: Tesla. (laughs) stock that everyone loves to hate and yet that just won't die. Uh, We saw them having manufacturing difficulties, unable to fulfill uh, the production amounts that they had expected. Shares are down a bit, not down as much as many people would like. Um, Do you think that they have a chance given the fact that the Detroit automakers are ramping up their
5: electric and automotive uh, car units? So, you know, it's. Tesla is, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk. I think that we need people like him to push our industry. So, So you said something nice about him. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I do. I mean, I think his technology is amazing. I think that his, um, you know, the people that buy into his dream of changing the face of mobility, he has given people a very clear why. Why does he want to do this? And people have reacted to that. And I think that his products are amazing as well. The, the challenge is that once he goes through those 500,000 people that have a deposit on the Model 3, is he adding 1,500 or 2,000 new deposits, you know, to make to, – to, as the, that demand gets filled? So I think that that's the challenge is getting people to buy his electric vehicle and not just buy his dream. Well, his now, dream
1: is costly, right? Because I mean, he's not making any money.
5: He is not making any money, but apparently that doesn't matter to Wall Street because they're buying into the dream as well. Well, and he owns a lot of the shares too, so that's one thing that a lot of short sellers yeah. will raise because uh, it's hard to uh, to borrow. To borrow, they're
1: very expensive. Yeah, and, he owns uh, more than a little bit more than twenty percent.
5: And you know, somebody very much smarter than me had mentioned that they're wondering with auto sales. You know, let's say those five hundred thousand people. Those people are kind of out of the market a little bit, like they're waiting, you know, so there's some pent up demand for people that have a deposit on the Model 3 that are saying, I'm not going to buy, maybe I'm not going to buy that Chevy Volt or Bolt, because I'm waiting for the Model 3. So, you know, it, it, it could be impacting the market a little bit as well. Rebecca Lindland, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, truly uh, wonderful to speak with you. Rebecca Lindland
2: is an executive analyst at Cox Automotive, talking about the fantastic sales numbers that we've been getting out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.